You're listening to the Monday Christian Podcast, the program that helps you put into action the truth of God's Word that you hear on Sunday to your everyday life on Monday. And now, here is your host, Ezra Beyer. Well, hey there. Welcome to the Monday Christian Podcast again. Just wanted to let you know, if you're listening to this on one of our iTunes channels, you can check out our YouTube channel as well mondaychristian.com, and you can watch the full video of our conversation that we're about to have today. So, Elliot, here we go again. Great conversation with a church planner, Micah Davis. It was a great conversation. Great guy. Um, Really interested in a lot of what he talked about. Very relatable. Um, And I know for you as well with church planning, so very interesting conversation. Super practical guy, and he talks about how do I find God's purpose for my life? Mm -hmm. Obviously. Mm -hmm huge topic. And depending on your theological background, your church tradition, you have different thoughts. Some, it's like calling's the big deal, right? You need to have a specific, unique calling from God, and then you know what you're supposed to do. Others, it's kind of a little more loosey-goosey where you say, ah, you know, hey, you're good at this, so lean into that Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. see what happens. And so Micah kind of addresses some of that in his conversation and gets pretty vulnerable sharing yeah. some of the struggles he had personally, struggles in his family. And so I think there's that mixture of really good content, but then thought-provoking story as well. Yeah, yeah. And a, a beautiful story, I think, a redeeming story too, if you look at it too, to, to hear some of his his background, some of the things he had to deal with, struggle with, and then to see how God is working in his life today. Yeah, it touches on that calling, something that I think we're all we're all looking for in our own lives. I won't spoil it for those of you that are listening, but yeah, Michael gets into some very practical stuff here. So he's launching a new church here in just a couple of weeks. It's called the Sanctuary Church. And I know a number of our listeners live in or around the Indianapolis area. So I just encourage you, check it out. And uh, it'll be starting here in just a few a few months. We'll have links to his church in the show notes below as well. But with that said, let's go ahead and get into our conversation with Micah Davis. Well, Micah, thanks for joining the Money Christian Podcast today. Great to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Colin from Indianapolis. And so I lived in Cincinnati for seven years. And uh, what's it like living in Indy? What's the... For those that are outside that context, what do they need to know? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Um, I feel like everyone, especially outside the state of Indiana, has an opinion about Indiana, even if it's just a you know a pretty broad opinion about Indiana. But Indianapolis specifically uh, is a beautiful city. It's actually the 13th largest city in the country. Uh, we have a couple million people in the city center, so. Um, very diverse, uh, very multi-ethnic, actually about half of our uh, population inside the loop of Indianapolis is African-American, uh, which again, knowing Indiana, not a lot of people would think, but yeah, um, yeah so it's just, a, it's a beautiful place. It's like the perfect balance of small town feel, but also large city attractions. And uh, we've lived here for five years now and we just absolutely adore it. That was one of the things. So I lived in Toronto, Canada for five years that's just big. It's big and it's just, it's a little overwhelming at times. When I lived in Cincinnati, it's a little bit of a different feel, that Midwestern feel where you're in the city, but you're not quite in the city, right? We lived almost downtown, but you can get out in the country pretty quickly. And it still has that almost small town vibe. And so 
that that feeling, that contrast between smaller, but then also the multi-ethnic approach is is kind of a beautiful thing. So yeah. how long have you lived there? Yeah, so my wife and I moved, we were actually living in the suburbs of Indianapolis for um, almost two years. And then we moved inside the loop of Indianapolis in August of 2020. So just celebrated three years nice. um, in the city. Nice. Wow. Okay. So let's just go back in time for the, those in our audience that don't know your story. Um, you grew up in a pastor's household, as I understand. Yes, that's correct. And what was that like? I, you know, growing up as a PK, um, what were your early experiences of God, the church, all, all that stuff? Yeah. So I've been a pastor's kid, uh, literally since I was born, my parents were pastoring a really tiny youth ministry, um, in Sandusky, Ohio, which is where I was born um, in the mid-90s. And quickly, the youth group outgrew the church as a whole. Um, and so my parents ended up uh, shifting away from youth ministry there to youth ministry in uh, the Chicagoland area, and then eventually in central Indiana, and then Nashville, Tennessee, before finally uh, planting a church actually on the north side of Indianapolis in 2003. And so my childhood was a whirlwind of moves every couple of years and different ministry experiences, but I was included uh, a lot really early on, which I think was very formational for me. My parents had me at 20 and 21. Um, so my parents were really young and they basically treated me like I was one of their youth students. So I got to play in the worship bands on Sunday nights with a little toy electric guitar mm -hmm. and lead worship. And um, I would say prayers during the service. So it was just very inclusive of me as a really young kid. And that was very formational for me. When did your dad move to Indianapolis to plant that church? Um, well, give us the time frame there. Yeah, so 2003 is when they moved to Indianapolis uh, in the summer of 2003, and then the church launched uh, later that fall. How, how much of the uh, PK stereotypes uh, did, did you live out, or, or was there a lot of stereotypes put on you as a PK? Yeah, so um, I'm sure we'll get into a little bit more of my family story here in a moment, but um, moving past that for, for a second. So we actually moved down to Nashville, Tennessee in 2008. My dad went on staff at a large mega church down, down there. And I ended up uh, going to a very, very diverse uh, public school in Nashville. Uh, it was a really interesting experience. Uh, a lot of classmates who came from vastly different socioeconomic backgrounds, vastly different ethnic backgrounds, vastly different religious backgrounds than I had ever experienced. Mm -hmm. um, and so was there for three years and then actually ended up going to a Christian private school for high school. Um, so when you talk about the kind of the PK, um, you know, topic, it's like when I got to Christian high school, it was actually much more amplified there because everyone had this stereotype right. of what the PK should be. And I actually, I didn't necessarily live out, I think the stereotype that I'm, I think you're thinking of in terms of like being the good kid on the surface and then being the partier on the weekends right, or whatever. Right. I actually genuinely was trying to be mm -hmm. a good kid. And that's not to say I didn't have my faults, but I was actually made fun of quite a bit um, in right. high school for, for clinging to my, my values and my convictions and uh, was certainly chastised for that quite a bit. And so because of that, I actually would 
vehemently deny ever wanting to go into ministry or wanting anything mm-hmm. to do with the church. I almost wore the PK hat as this cross to bear more than just this reality of, yeah, this is my experience and this is my family. This is who, I, who we are. Did that come from both your public school setting and your Christian school setting, or was there one more so than the other? Yeah, both, uh, but in different ways. So in the public school setting, it was much more explicit. It was, you know, being a Christian is stupid. Your God is not as good as my God or God's. Um, Much more explicit. When I got to Christian private school, it was much more uh, pharisaical. You know, a lot of Christians who knew the language and knew how to talk and using that language to almost counteract some of the very real things that I was experiencing or feeling um, and really trying to one up me, you know, Uh, which looking back on, I I didn't notice that in the moment, but looking back on, have had some, honestly, some conversations with people from those years who said, yeah, that that's how I was feeling. I was insecure or um, I, you know, your way of life made me jealous or whatever it may be. There was just a lot of, you know, teenage emotions Mm -hmm. that were flying around at that point in life. Yeah. Who, who can win on the, the basketball court? That, that's always important <laughs> in high school. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Switching from that pharisaical lens and then interacting with people from different cultural backgrounds. I mean, I think it takes, if you're a Christian that's made that transition, that's a hard pivot sometimes because, okay, here, here's a practical one. I was just writing on this morning. Um, you know, for example, when we lived in Toronto, Canada, right? People that live in more rural areas and haven't had as much exposure to cities might just assume they'll say kind of careless things like, oh, it's just a godless society. Well, no, most people actually believe in at least some form of spirituality, believe in God. And so if you approach that as well, you know, godless atheist, here I come to save you, uh, you run into a world of problems and you rightfully are kind of chastised, corrected as someone who's pretty egotistical and, you know, thinks you're better than others. And then it positions you you know completely in a wrong light um so that, that's fascinating pk and i know some in our audience could agree with that that upbringing um but going back so your dad pastors a church church plant in indianapolis and as you write in your book i guess it's a short time into that the church is growing but then he has a moral failure um what walk us through that and man what must have been going through your mind as all of that goes down yeah so October of 2005, um, the, the, the church that my parents had planted was one of the fastest growing churches in, Indi- in Indiana. Um, this is pre-social media, like right before social media came into view. Um, but I mean, my dad was about as much of a local celebrity as you could be at that point. Uh, the and this was when from- church planning was pretty hot. Wasn't that's it? right. Like, yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And so we planted with 12 people at our first gathering. And of course, I call it church planter energy. My dad <laughs> used that to kind <laughs> yeah, of love it. He was like, Jesus had 12 disciples. Yeah. We have 12 people here. We're going to change the world. Um, and uh, yeah, man, the, the next couple of years were, it was a miracle in motion. We saw um, tons and tons of baptisms at the time in 2005, there were 700 plus people attending on a weekend. Wow. It was just up and to the right. And my dad was honestly loving it. I mean, he was, he was making every correct decision on the surface and, and using that as further leverage to continue to grow the church, which at the time we were just caught up in all of it. And we just thought, this is amazing. Look at what God's doing. 
And we didn't realize what was happening beneath the surface of my dad's heart. And so in October of 2005, he came home from church. It was a normal, by all accounts, a normal Sunday. Um, I think I write in the book, you know, my mom, we were probably melting after church. And so mom would always take us through McDonald's to get a happy meal to turn those frowns upside down, you know, <laughs> and because um, she couldn't cook. And so it was like yeah. Let's McDonald's. So we come home and, and we're sitting at the table. It's, it's very normal. I think my mom goes upstairs to take a nap. And the next thing I know, I, I, I remember vividly just intense screaming. And at that point in my life, my parents were um, pretty consistent with having some pretty intense arguments. I would remember sitting on the staircase and listening to them fight, and I would just wait for the moment to interject and intervene. So that wasn't abnormal, but this fight in particular was marking. It, I mean, it was terrifying. I, I thought someone had died. And uh, yeah, the next thing I know, my dad was walking out of the house with some dry cleaning over his shoulder. I asked him where he was going, and he said he was going away. And got in the car and drove off. And I did not know what was happening. I was 10 years old. How old, old were you? Uh, okay, 10. Yeah. Yeah. So 10 years old. And I just did, did not know what was happening. Later that day, a bunch of people came over to our house. And it was then that I was able to start piecing together that my dad had had an affair with our children's pastor, who was also my mom's best friend. Um, and he had essentially told my mom he was done with church. He was done with her. He was done with our family and he wanted to go live a different life. And mm. so that was the reality that I was stepping into. Sheesh. Man, man. I mean, 10 years old, that's, that's, uh, that's some heavy stuff. I mean, in the months after that, did you have a similar feeling where I'm done with the church? You know, yeah. how did you start piecing that together in your mind? Yeah, I, I think there was a dual reality that was happening. Um, our, the core of our church, the people who my family was closest to, they came around, my brothers and I, I was the oldest of three at the time. Um, I had a seven-year-old and a three-year-old brother at the time. Um, and they came around us beautifully. I mean, I, I still remember, we are, we are huge Star Wars fans. I remember one of the elders took us to Walmart and got us, um, you know, cause it was right around Halloween when everything happened. So they took us uh, Halloween costume shopping and we got like the nicest star Wars outfits and like these like epic, really expensive lightsabers that we never could have afforded. And I just remember feeling like I'm in heaven. Like, I'm like, mm -hmm. this is amazing. You know? So people were coming around my, my siblings and I really, really well. Um, but at the same time, there was kind of this broader narrative that was happening of just the church dealing with the fallout of their lead pastor of this really fast growing church abandoning them. And so there was a lot of hurt that was happening that I was shielded from at the time. But what I couldn't understand is why can't we go back? Like, wh why can't we, this is our church. This is our home. This is our family. Why can't we show up the next Sunday? Why can't uh, we, you know, continue to, to lead this church and be the pastor's kids of this church, et cetera, et cetera. And so there was a moment, um, it was a, a couple weeks later, my dad was living with an elder and his family at the time. And I just remember showing up to the house and just saying, dad, he's like, yeah, buddy. And I just said, I, I hate you. And I just remember feeling in that moment, like now, now I've got him. Like now I get to tell him how I really feel. And I just said, I hate you so much. I cannot believe that you would do this to mom, to our family, to our church. 
And I think that was the dualism that was happening in my life where I was seeing the church show up so beautifully. And yet I was seeing someone who led the church fail so miserably. And I was trying to sit in that tension. And it was really, really tough for, for yeah. a long time trying to discern through all of that. How, when you look back on church history, this is something I would thought about a number of times. I think of, you know, as come, come, coming from more of a Wesleyan background, I think of John Wesley and some of the family challenges he had. I mean, the list can go on and on and mm-hmm. on. People that, quote unquote, made a major impact for God. But then you look at it, some of the practical outworkings of how life and their family operated. It's like, man, I don't know how to reconcile those two things. How do you process that? Because I'm sure as you look back, you would have seen many instances where God did amazing things through the growth of that church. But then all of a sudden you have this horrible thing that brings your world crashing down. How have you kind of parsed that out, I guess, as you've had time to reflect? Yeah. I wish that I could give a more nuanced answer than this. I think overall, it's just the mystery of God and who he is. And I think he is sovereign enough to be able to use broken vessels like you and me to be able to accomplish his work, his redemptive work here on earth as it is in heaven. And at the same time, um, just the travesty of the human heart and the ways that we all fall short of the glory mm. of God and are all sinners. And there's just a, a reality of, of both and there. But you know, when I look at just the history of of the church and the ways that he's used people. I was actually just talking with a friend about a book um, called Daily Rituals. I don't know if you guys have yeah. heard of it or not, but it's actually not a Christian book. It, it details, I want to say a hundred maybe of the top thinkers, artists, philosophers of the last like five centuries, anywhere from Bach to Mozart to Einstein. And it, it basically just goes through their daily rituals, their daily rhythms of what made them geniuses in their field. And, I was just telling him, I was struck by how, I mean, man, if I had to put a percentage on it, probably 80 to 85% of those individuals who literally changed the world as we know it had horrendous personal lives, had multiple mistresses, multiple affairs, kids were estranged, no outside contact with the world. And I think you know, whether we're talking about the scriptures and the, the imperfect people that God used there to accomplish his outworking, or even just what we would call secular people who have no affiliation with Christianity, and yet we're still able to accomplish great things despite being really broken people. Um, I think there's just a, there's just a both and there to that, that I've had to understand that um, no one's perfect, but we all have to do our best to keep character that the main thing and if we lose sight of that you know i think that's jesus's line what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul i think there's a lot of people who get to the end of life who have done some really really great things for the kingdom and yet at least personally to them it's all in vain you know and i just i would hate to get to the end of my life and to feel that but as it relates to the church you know the church i actually just recorded a video for them today they're celebrating 20 years as a church this year um, so the church that your dad founded that my dad founded wow. yeah, 20 years this year and they are actually supporting uh, the church that we are planting so this beautiful wow. full circle moment and uh, is just your grateful. dad involved at all with the ministry at all or does is he you know what's his connection there? yeah um he's not he's not involved um uh he directly 
indirectly, he is a coach and a mentor for me and uh, just our own process. He is also really close to the lead pastor at the mm. church that he founded. Now that pastor who came in after him has been salt of the earth in terms of loving our family and repairing some of those broken bridges. And overall, man, I mean, you talk about, you know, just the, the redemptive aspects of God and the mystery of it. Um, my, my dad ended up um, repenting and kind of coming to the end of himself. My parents were able to restore their marriage and for the last 18 years have been literally traveling around the world, repairing and restoring thousands of marriages uh, through, through their yeah. story and their testimony of healing. And so you just, you just chalk it up to the mystery of God and the wonders of him being able to use both and so it's you know it's crazy when i look back on that time so i'm 34 and i look back to the early thousands and it's funny when i go back and read books from like christian books popular christian books from like 09 through 06 05 the way they talk about the church like i'm talking about american authors there was such an unhealthy mindset in my opinion of how to grow and what it looked like so some of the language that even you used in your book, like, like kind of ma making fun of that. Right. It, it just, it, it brought a chuckle to me because it's, it's so funny that whole language of, you know, we'll start with 12 and then it, we're going to go from here and then we're going to impact the world. And, you know, here's all the things that we're going to do. And meanwhile, I think for a lot of cases, I think character, it, maybe took 10, 15 years in some cases to show, but eventually it got revealed. Um, and now it seems like we've maybe had a different push where people like Dallas Willard coming more to the surface. And then we realize the importance of healthy rhythms. Um, you're going into a church plant now. So what's going through your mind as you prepare to launch this fall? Um, you know, what are, what's that balance between, I know church planning is, it's intense, very intense. How do you enter that arena and you want to make a difference and you got to do a lot of things that are nitty gritty, but on the same hand, taking care of your soul. How do you balance those two? Yeah. Uh, I mean, you are hitting on, I think, the, uh, the war that every follower of Jesus fights, you know, of that, that tension between what Willard would call being versus doing. And, um, you know, I, 2020 was an interesting year for me spiritually. Obviously, a lot happened in the world. But for me personally, I was on staff at a mega church. I was doing all of the things that um, you would think would equate to a successful ministry. Our youth ministry was growing like crazy, and we were impacting a lot of lives and all of this stuff. But at some point in August of 2020, um, I'm sorry, July of 2020, I came to the end of myself and realized this pace of life is not sustainable. And if I'm going to continue to operate out of this paradigm of doing for Jesus rather than being with Jesus, I'm going to, I'm going to crumble. Um, and I don't know if that would have ended in moral failure or if it would have just ended in throwing in the, the white towel and just saying, I'm done. This is too hard. But I, I had to discover a different way of life. And, 
Um, at that point in time, I had come in contact with randomly. It ended up on my bookshelf. I literally don't know how it got there, but Pete Scazzaro's Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Yeah. And just that was about came the same contact, time I discovered it as, as well. Yeah. So just came in contact with this whole concept of slowed down spirituality and the desert fathers and mothers and, mm-hmm. and what it looks like for our being uh, or for our doing to come out of our being with Jesus and man, that was a transformative season mm. uh, for me and my ministry. And so when, when we decided to plant the sanctuary, um, we decided that we wanted to be really intentional about creating space for uh, this to, to, to be healthy, as healthy as it can be. So I actually started the church planting process with a one-month sabbatical, um, which was very confusing to a lot of people that you had just mentioned, people who were church planting in the 2000s. I got a lot of pushback, a lot of, you know, kind of side eyes and you're doing what? And I just said, if if this church is going to operate at a healthy pace, then it needs to be planted from rest, not just five years in, mm. you know, we get burned out and decide, okay, now it's time to rest. That needs to be the, the, the operative, um, you know, speed at which we start. And so, um, I would say that that was a really big decision for us to start from rest. Um, we're now one month out from launching the church. So we're in a very, what I just would call like a crucible of a time. And so right now, what I'm really trying to prioritize is just the quiet place and trying to make sure that I am beginning my days and ending my days in quiet and creating space for God to speak and to l- allow that to be the overflow out of which I pastor, not kind of the last resort. I think that's interesting. I know both of you are now from what I, you know, from what I can tell pretty involved in church planning, Ezra, I know you were, and then Micah, as you're saying, I, I'm really interested in this difference between being and doing, because I think there's this connotation with church planting that it's a lot of doing, right? And this idea of being comes after all the work you do to be able to sustain a church. And it's like, that comes later. So where is the difference there? And what would your encouragement be to churches to maybe have a focus on this attitude of rest, especially for not just church planning, but I'm sure for people going into ministry. Um, what, where, what, what is the difference between doing and being? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, as soon as you said that, I just thought of Matthew chapter four, honestly, of Jesus in the wilderness. And this is my kind of the whole paradigm of how I open trailblazers is with this uh, kind of aspect of liminal space, kind of the space in between. And I think so much of our lives, we tend to focus on when it comes to purpose and God's will and what he's called us to do. We tend to focus on these like really divine revelatory moments where like Mm -hmm. God speaks and we know exactly what we're supposed to do. But I think the majority of life is spent in kind of this day-to-day faithful character formation. Mm. Um, And so with that, I look at the life of Jesus. Jesus spent essentially 30 years in obscurity. And then he went to the desert and was tempted by the devil. And then it says that he came back in the power of the Holy Spirit to then live out his, his three years of ministry. And I think that is such a helpful paradigm for how we as pastors or even just followers of Jesus are to operate that I just don't think Jesus would have 
led his ministry any other way than out of the power of the Holy Spirit. Mm. And that only could Mm. have come by his decision to deliberately head into the wilderness and to wrestle with Satan. And then to be right before that, he's baptized and is receives his identity from the father. This is my son whom I love and in whom I'm well pleased. So you have this identity piece and then you have this spirit piece that are the baseline for everything that Jesus does from there. And so for anyone listening, whether you're a Christian leader or you're not a follower of Jesus to have the identity piece set and then to have a power greater than ourselves who we believe is the power of the Holy spirit, the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead to have that within us. And as the wellspring of our lives, that affects everything we do from there. So I I would say that's, that's the paradigm of, of being before doing, if Mm. that makes sense. That's good. What makes church planning so tricky is there's a lot of things you have to do. And people that are on the outside and don't understand that world, sometimes they'll often say, well, just, you know, just rest in who, who God is, right? And, and just trust him, right? And that we know that's what we're supposed to do. But then the reality is you get there at, a you know, what a, you know how, whatever time you start on a Sunday morning and then the kids worker hasn't shown up or something, you know, something happens, right? There's so many things that are just magnified in a church planning environment. And that, that then all of a sudden you're tested of how much you actually rest and trust in God. And that's constantly that tension because there's points, especially in a new church plant where you're, you're maxing yourself out a little bit, where something happens that you just totally did not expect. And then all of a sudden you're like, Oh my goodness. You know, I, I think I've talked to church planners, right. Who launched just before COVID, right? <laughs> they weren't expecting that to happen at all. And then all of a sudden they face this world of, you know, do we, are we allowed to open up in our school and all that kind of stuff, all those things. And, and I think that's when the rubber meets the road, because it's like, what does that look like to really trust Jesus? But then on the same hand, um, live out what he's called us to do. It's, it's, it gets very messy very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to get into your book here. So you, you mentioned in, uh, especially in the intro, um, in the first couple chapters, about the importance of character. One of the lines you said, you said, when you step fully into your calling and find you're trailblazing for Jesus, you will need to learn to lean on these foundational qualities as pillars for your journey. Don't try to learn character on the fly. Here's a question for you. Um, what would you say are some of the biggest character-defining moments in your life that have shaped you? Hmm. Wow. That's a big question. I think the first thing that comes to mind, um, which I write about in the book is a very small, you know, quote unquote, small um, event that took place when I was, I don't know, 10 or 12 or something like that, that the movie Benchwarmers had just released. And Mm -hmm. It was starring John Heater, who was my favorite actor at the time. I loved Napoleon Dynamite, campaigned off of the whole vote for Pedro thing for my fourth grade uh, student council and won uh, by giving everyone tater tots. So I think that that movie, was it shot in Idaho? I can't remember. I I think it was shot not too, too far away from here, if I remember right. Could be wrong. There you go. Okay. Yeah. So just, you know, claim to fame. Yeah. So my 12 year old self, yeah, my 12 year old self is like, Oh, it's got Napoleon Dynamite in it. I got to see it. And yeah. my parents essentially said no, that it was not appropriate for me to watch. And I went over to a friend's house and um, ended up watching it behind their back and and told mm-hmm. them that I was watching something else. I think I think 
like, yeah, there, I think I'd called my parents and told them what we were doing and it was not that. Um, and so I just remember the next day, the guilt being so all consuming that I finally went to my dad and confessed. Mm. And I just remember sitting down with him in that moment and him saying, do you see now why we didn't watch you watching that movie? It wasn't because we were bad parents. It wasn't because we were, you know, trying to be mean or uncool. It's because we knew that what you were going to watch was not going to be healthy for your soul. And I think that is just such a great just lesson that I've learned for really the, the rest of my life moving forward, that there are just things that as a consecrated follower of Jesus, there are just things that my soul cannot take in, you know? And so um, I could go moment after moment from there where I was presented with this opportunity to watch this movie or listen to that song or go to this concert and having to say no and having to face the consequences mm -hmm. of social ostracization mm -hmm. or uh, being left at home or just not even getting the invites after that, you know, uh, but knowing that I, I can't, I can't, I can't do that, you know? So. When you develop your character, how do you find God's purpose for your life? It feels like different theological traditions, which one you come from, some say it's a high emphasis on calling, right? I feel called to do this. Others, it's more, well, you know, just figure it out and what you're good at and lean into that. Yeah. What would yeah. you say to someone who's trying to discover their purpose? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and again, the, the whole way that I try to craft the, the book together, it kind of coalesces in this paradigm of formation more than revelation. So I don't want to create this reality where people think they're going to open up the book and I'm just going to tell them exactly what it is that God's will is for their life, right? That's, that's foolish to think that any of us could do that. Um, I think the bigger question is, who am I becoming? And as I answer that question, who am I becoming, we start to gain clarity around what it is that God has called us to do. So I, I think I have this um, equation in the book, character plus consistency equals clarity. So when we are consistent in forming who God has called us to be, eventually we gain clarity on what it is that he's called us to do. And so the book in and of itself is kind of this mixture of character traits and spiritual disciplines that I have leaned into and have had to learn some easily, some the hard way over the course of my life up to this point. And I'm having to literally live out in real time, as we were just talking about a moment ago, Ezra, in just the crucible of church planting, of recognizing, okay, I I'm starting to discover what God has called me to do. But the more, the more important question is, who has he called me to be? And if I'm aligned with who he's called me to be, then I'm going to trust that what I've been called to do will come into clear view. How much... Um, a part of that stepping into God's calling, how much of that involves trials that come along the way that also add to character building, right? Something you say, submission to God doesn't mean abstinence or, or absence, sorry, from trials on the road, right? Uh, yeah. But it secures his presence on the journey. It yeah. reminds me of uh, the C.S. Lewis quote, it's a very similar quote that, God is going to, you know, the, the trials don't mean the absence of God, but they might prove to his leading toward him, his presence in your life. Um, how, how 
much of that character building is due to trials. And what would be your encouragement to maybe a young person who's going from high school to college is hitting maybe some some walls in life of I don't know what to do. I feel like I'm called to this, but I'm having, you know, my parents are splitting up or uh, I, I don't know what college to choose those certain trials. How much of that is key to building character in the calling of God? Yeah. I think about the line uh, from Jesus, John 16, in this world, you will have trials and troubles of many kinds, but take heart for I have overcome the world. And that, that line is critical to understand that following Jesus is not signing up for a life absent of suffering. Mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. actually believe that the, 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 um, pinnacle of following Jesus is learning how to increase in suffering love. It's this taking up our cross and following Jesus. And I think there was this um, kind of this context in the church for the last 30 years where, and Ezra, you could probably relate to this, where we moved so much away from legalism and then it became so much about grace that we started to assume that following Jesus was easy. And And I just, I think that has been so damaging for us as the church, because we have a generation of people who assume if anything hard happens to me, then I must not be living in God's will. Or if anything bad happens to me, then I must've done something that was disobedient or et cetera, et cetera. And it's, it's so wrong because following Jesus is simple, but it's not easy. So Jesus is very explicit about what it means to follow him. Pick up your cross, follow me. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Like these very explicit, clear instructions. But that is not easy. That is a lifetime journey of being formed into the image of Jesus. So when it comes to handling suffering, I see that as invitation. Am I going to lean further in to the person that I feel God is calling me to become? Or am I going to give in to desire or am I going to give in to uh, laziness or am I going to give in to um, disorientation or whatever it may be that feels easier than stepping into the suffering, knowing that Jesus is standing right next to me enduring the same suffering that he Mm -hmm. did on the cross. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. he is the wounded healer himself. He knows suffering better than anyone. And so, um, yeah, yeah, I just see suffering as an invitation to be further formed into who God has called us to be. It it should be viewed as um, an invitation rather than an inconvenience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Going back to Willard, he talks about relaxed obedience. And when you think about relaxed obedience, you can get that imagery of, well, okay, just hands off. Um, you know, Christianity is about, you know, it's done, not do, you know, all those cliches we love to throw around. But uh, one of the things that Willard also said, he said, you know, uh, grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning, right? And I think right. that's, the, that's the key difference, that when I liken it when I ref hockey, I ref hockey for 10 years and, you know, seven around Cincinnati, Virginia, and then He's got bad Canada. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like a great Canadian. <laughs> and, and what was fascinating, you'd watch kids, right? They're out there playing. And then all of a sudden, it's like one team would go crazy. And they would just start, you know, they'd be talking back to the refs, which, you know, was always enjoyable. And, <laughs> you know, you'd have a whole, it, it's like, the, and you realize you look over at the coaches 
and it came from them or maybe a parent, right? A parent was saying something and you watched, you watch kids that played like for the favor of their coach or their parents and they always played uptight, but the coaches that were calm or the parents that were calm, but they gave great instructions when the kids came back to the bench, there was, the kids had presence, right? They played hard, but there was, there was peace knowing that when it, when they went into the corners, right? They're playing from the favor and that, that playing from the favor, favor rather than for the favor, major, major difference. It seems like in life because right. you can both play at a high level, but it, it's a totally different motivation. So that's right. That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And that's why the, the through line in Jesus's life is coming out of the baptismal waters and God saying, this is my son whom I love and with whom I am well pleased. Jesus operates yeah. out of that identity henceforth. Right. And it's not to say that he didn't before then, but he was in obscurity before then. So his ultimate purpose on this earth came out of that identifier of being God's son. And that's when, for all intents and purposes that we know, that was the day that he truly embraced who he was called to be. I mean, some people just feel like they're God's gift, right? So we got that, <laughs> that got that group of people. But I would say more than not, a lot of people just feel unqualified. And they feel the sense of, Ugh, I've done too many things, uh, I've messed up, or just something that's kind of disqualified me from really leaning into who God's created me to be. What do you say to a person who has those thoughts today? How do they overcome that and lean into their purpose? Yeah. And I often say the hardest person to forgive is ourselves. And I think there's a lot of people who are walking around with shame and guilt for things that have happened in their past. Maybe that was within their control, maybe for things that was outside of their control. And it's all culminated into this identity that says, I'm not enough, I'm not cool enough, I'm not pretty enough, I'm not gifted enough, I'm not however you want to fill in the blank. And I think, um, I think Peter is such a great archetype for this. You know, here's this, this fisherman turned apostle who, Jesus literally says, you are now the rock on which I'm going to build my church. And what does Peter do from there? He denies Jesus three times, you know, and I just love that exchange where Jesus and Peter go back and forth. And Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? And, and Peter says, yes, Lord, of course, you know, I love you. And then he says, do you love me? And he says, yes, Lord, I love you. And a third time he says, do you love me? And I think there's such a beautiful uh, parallel there of three times that, Je or that Peter denied Jesus and three times that Jesus reminded Peter of who he is in Christ, that he is God's beloved, that he is the rock on which Jesus is going to build his church, that his mistakes do not necessarily define him, but the grace and the blood of what Jesus did on the cross, that is the identity operative that he's going to operate from. And so yeah, to anyone who's struggling with doubt or shame or I'm not good enough, I just would say, do you trust that Jesus is who he says he is? Because he himself said that he died for you, that God so loved the world that he sent his son to die for you and for me and for all of us so that none of us would perish but have everlasting life. And that everlasting life again if we're going back to kind of the evangelical upbringing that i grew up in was like that everlasting life is not now but 
one day when you die, <laughs> you know, and it was just a, such this future forward vision, but that is not the vision that we are given. It is on earth as it is in heaven, that, that, right. that reality, that redemption, living out that reality can be experienced now right. today. And that is the invitation that you and me are both given. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Eternal life. It's a person, not a place. Eh? And uh, <laughs> that's, right. that's a big difference. Um, all right, let's wrap up here. Any other closing thoughts? I mean, we'll link to your book in the show notes below so people can go and pick up that copy. Um, but again, for the person that's listening to this and they're saying, okay, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit on the fence right now. What's one practical step that they could do to potentially, it, it, let's say they're confused, right? They're saying, I don't really know what my purpose is. I've got an idea. I've got, I know what I'm good at. I know what other people tell me I'm good at. What's maybe one concrete step they can take today that can help them lean into that? Yeah, man, that's a, a great question. Um, I think any time that we operate with ideals in isolation, that's a really dangerous place to be. Um, and so I would just encourage anyone who's on the fence of trying to figure out what is it that God has called me to do or who am I or why on earth am I here? Any of those existential questions, I believe they have to be wrestled through in the context of community. Um, and so, you know, a really helpful practice that my wife and I partook in a year ago now, we were in between trying to discern what it was that God was calling us to do. And we had this sense that he was calling us to plant a church in the city of Indianapolis, but we were terrified at that prospect. And it was not something that we willingly wanted to just blindly step into. That was a huge, huge decision, a life altering decision that we were about to make. And we were trying to discern is this what God has called us to do? And so we ended up um, inviting a really small group of people over for what's called a clarity committee. I don't know if you guys are familiar mm. with it at all. It's a, it's a Quaker practice. Um, and essentially it's just, you get, uh, you know, six to 12 people into a room, you circle up, you share what it is that you feel like God um, has laid before you, whatever it is that you're trying to discern. And then for two hours, you set a timer for two hours, the group simply asks questions. They cannot give insight. They cannot offer their opinion. They cannot tell you what to do. They just have to get really curious and they have to ask really good questions. And the Quakers believe that by the end of that clarity committee, that communal discernment would rise to the surface by the end of that period. Mm. That as everyone started to ask questions and you were kind of, you know, for all intents and purposes, put on the hot seat, you know, to have to kind of answer and not necessarily defend what it is that God uh, has laid on your heart, but to, to give clear reasoning and to, to work through the I don't knows. And that's not clear to me yet. Like by the end of the time, all of that starts to come into clear view. And hopefully by the end, there's a consensus of, I think this is the direction that God is leading us. And so for us, it was, do we, um, actually move up to Grand Rapids, Michigan to, to help plant a church up there? Or do we stay in Indianapolis and plant a church here? And both of those options were presented before a clarity committee. And by the end of the two hours, we were all in agreement that it was to Indianapolis that God mm. had called us to. So that could just be one practical thing that I think mm. anyone who's sitting in that wrestling could, you know, call up some buddies, call mm. up some really trusted, wise voices, ideally people from different 
age groups um, to, to bring in some communal discernment and, and yeah, ask the question. I love it. I've never heard that term before, but that's, that's yeah. fascinating. Brings sure. in the community aspect of it. Um, great insight right there. Well, Micah, thanks for joining us today. Uh, pleasure to have you on. Yeah, thank you so much, guys. So great conversation with Micah. Whenever you talk about finding God's purpose for my life, obviously a big topic, but I loved his perspective there at the end. Elliot, had, had you ever heard of that, those clarity meetings? No, I, I hadn't. I, I've heard of groups of like prayer groups and even the, the, the silent groups where you get in a room, but the, the clarity group never really heard about that, but very practical. I kind of want to try it, to be honest. <laughs> I do too. Yeah. I do too. I, that was very thought provoking because what a great strategy. Mm-hmm. Just ask questions, listen. Yeah. It, and I think it could get rid of a lot of uh, the like self by like being biased, being yeah. biased with your own like desire or interest. And it kind of can maybe sift through a lot of that. You know what I mean? Well, we live in a world of media driven narratives. Yeah. Where it's like, okay, a reporter goes to a scene but they're there with a clear agenda to make you believe something about what's mm-hmm. going on. Mm-hmm. And it's sometimes rare to find um, friends, uh, people that are close to us that kind of approach conversations with a neutral agenda. Yeah. yeah. Not going to tell you what to do, but I'm just going to yeah. listen. So I love that piece of advice. Mm-hmm. So that last couple minutes, that might be pure gold for some of our listeners. I'd encourage you to give that a go. So sure. Yeah. Then leave and- us an email. See how it worked out. Hopefully, yeah, yeah, give it a review. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. Well, have a great week, everyone. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to check us out on iTunes, Google Play, leave us a five star review. That would help out a lot. We'll talk to you all again soon. Thank you for listening to the Monday Christian Podcast. To support our vision and find new ways to put your faith into action throughout the week, visit themondaychristian.com. That's the MondayChristian.com.